Welcome to CT Church. This message was recorded during our Sunday service. We hope you enjoy this presentation. Well, I want to continue this morning. Uh, We're at uh, part four of our five-part series, Back to the Basics. And we're just, we've just been spending some time talking about getting back to the basics of what it means to be a real follower of Jesus Christ. Uh, we began our first week by talking about what does it mean to be a follower. Uh, the next week we talked about what it means to be a real disciple. Last week we talked about what it means to be an ambassador for Jesus. And today I want us to look at a, another word, the word member. and and membership. The Bible tells us that to be a follower of Jesus, it means that we become members of his family and members of his body. And I'm sure most of you have figured out by now that uh, following Jesus requires more than just believing. Even though we refer to brothers and sisters in Christ as believers, you have to do more than simply believe that Jesus is real. Satan absolutely is a believer. He believes Jesus is very, very real. He believes God, uh, God's power is a very, very real thing. But just believing is not enough. We have to act on our belief. Amen? So we belong to the family of God, which is also called the church. And once we belong, we then hopefully become. And here's what I mean. We believe, then we belong, and then we become, hopefully we become, all that God wants for us to be. The church is described as the body of Christ, and it's uh, referred to as the family of God. And in both of these cases, membership is imperative. Membership is incredibly valuable. In fact, our English word member or membership comes from the Bible itself. The word member carries a lot more weight than just, uh, you know, wearing a special hat or wearing a shirt with your club logo on it or knowing the secret handshake or whatever the case may be. Membership means that you are vitally connected. Membership, the title of this message is Membership Has Its Privileges. You know, in the Assemblies of God, Uh, we're a little different than a lot of other mainstream uh, Protestant denominations when it comes to counting members of the church. In the average Assembly of God church, whatever the the, the average Sunday attendance, let's say the average Sunday attendance is 400 people, chances are very good that the actual membership of that church is about half of that, 200 people, as opposed to other denominations where maybe their membership roles have 600 people on them. In fact, their average Sunday attendance is, is maybe half of that, 300. It's, it's the opposite in most Assembly of God churches because we place a lot of emphasis on membership. And we believe that those who are requesting membership want to be vitally connected to this body. Amen? I think that's fair. Uh, Your hand is a part of your body, and yet if you cut your hand off, it's just going to shrivel up and die. And by doing so, you limit your ability to do a lot of things in life at that point, right? If you cut off one hand, you only got one, there's just going to be stuff you can't do anymore. 
You can't drink a glass of water, pick your nose at the same time, unless you are really, really good. That's going to be a tough one. It's just going to shrivel up and die. You cut off your ears, you're not going to be hearing a whole lot. How many of you believe your legs are very, very valuable to you? Your legs are pretty valuable, but if you cut your legs off, they pretty much become worthless, right? You cut your legs off, what are you going to do? There's not much you can do. You could take them to the taxidermist, have them hollowed out, and just set them by the door and put your umbrellas in there, something like that. Yes, I'm a sick man. I'm, I, I suffer from a few things. A warped imagination is, is obviously one of those things. Or if you cut your leg off, you could put it in a window, put a little lampshade on it. I've heard about people that do that. It's a major reward. Not going to be very, very valuable. But think about this. In the same manner, we, we shrivel up and we die spiritually when we become disconnected from the body of Christ. And we're in, in that same way, we are part of a family. The Bible tells us we have family responsibilities to each other. Galatians 6.10 says this, Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially those who belong to the family of believers. You have to notice it says we have to do good to everybody, which is always a challenge, right? How many of you personally know someone that it's just not easy to be loving towards? because they are so unloving. But his word tells us, no, we don't get to pick and choose who we're going to be nice to and who we're going to be ugly to. Not if we're actually going to be real followers of Christ. It certainly doesn't mean we can't do it, right? But if we're claiming to be a true follower of Christ, we can't do that. According to the Bible, as a, a follower of Jesus, I have to love everybody, and we all know that is a challenge at times. It's tough a lot of times. It requires sacrifice and commitment. So even to those people who treat me badly, I am held accountable to be loving towards. And it's telling me to do good to all people, but then it tags that little thing on at the end, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. As part of the church, we're, we're members of the body of Christ and we are family members, which is why so often we refer to each other as, you know, Brother Smith or, you know, Sister whoever, fill in the blank. And so, you know, Brother Brothers. Everly Brothers. Dream. I got to get this out of my head. That's just... So this, this, this view that we have, this, this uh, Christian world view that we have as followers of Jesus Christ, <coughs> it's, uh, a lot of people have a different view of the church today. A lot of times when people hear the word church, they, they, they just think of a big building or maybe they think of some special event they go to at Christmas or Easter, and that's kind of what they relate to church. The Bible says that church isn't any of that. The church is not an event. The church is not a particular building. Church is relationship. It's family. Never go against the family. 
I'm on a roll today. It's just the filter. You hit 60, the filter disappears. Something comes into your head. You just kind of do it. You know, you say, Don't talk about the family. I'm sorry. I lost my place. The Bible. Good thing I have notes. Church is about relationship. And this family that we become, as we, we talked about this a little bit last week, this church family is going to outlast, way outlast our physical family. This, this family that we belong to of believers is going to outlast everything on planet earth. We're, we're the only thing that's going to last on planet Earth. Today, it's, it's not uncommon at all to hear someone say uh, something like, well, you know, I, I believe in Jesus, I love Jesus, I just don't want to belong to some church. We all hear that. And according to the Bible, though, you're not a real believer and you don't really love Christ because the body of Christ is His church to which we are called to be a part of. You can't say, I love you, Jesus. I hate your body. Meaning, you know, I like you, but I cannot stand your family. Some of you in your marriage, you've maybe had this type of situation before, and you know exactly what I'm talking about. I love you, not so much your family. But this kind of attitude is like saying, I want to play in the NFL. I just don't want to play for, on a particular team. That's not how it works, is it? If you're going to participate in a team sport, it's all predicated on you being part of a team, right? That's kind of how it works. Or it'd be like going down to the Army recruiter station here in San Antonio, huge military town. And you walk in there and say, yeah, I want to sign up. But before I sign the line, I want you to understand I'm going to do things my way. I'll make the rules. I'll decide where I'm going to go, what I'm going to do. Is this going to be a problem? And where are you going to find yourself? Standing out on the sidewalk, right? Or laying on the sidewalk, depending on which recruiter you run into on a particular day. You're not going to get to make your own rules, are you? I mean, it's like a, just like a bee needs a hive, a Christian needs a church family. You can't follow Jesus and yet not be connected to his family. The Bible calls it being a member. The book of uh, Acts uh, tells the story of the creation, the beginning of the church. It's, uh, it refers to the Acts of the Apostles. The Acts of the uh, early church was written by Luke, who was a physician by trade, and he was kind of a detail guy. So you read through the book of Acts, it's, there's quite a few details in there. Here's a very quick, short synopsis. Jesus rises from the dead and he tells his followers, go wait in Jerusalem until I send a special gift that I have for you, which we know is his Holy Spirit. And this is going to signal the beginning of the church. So in Acts, in Acts chapter 1, there's about 120 people waiting in that upper room for Christ to send his spirit. I took this picture in Jerusalem. That is the actual upper room where the Last Supper took place and where the church began. 
And uh, we were told that, you know, the walls and the ceiling have all been redone and replaced, but that floor, those stones that, that make up that floor are over a foot thick, and they were there from the get-go. So as you walk across the floor of that room, it just almost is an overwhelming feeling that I am walking where Jesus and the disciples and the first church walked. This is the room the Holy Spirit descended on. And I mean, it, it is a very surreal yet overwhelming kind of feeling to experience. So in Acts 2, we have the first day of church, the day of Pentecost. The people are filled with the baptism of the Holy Spirit. They speak in, in other tongues. Uh, Peter goes out and he preaches his first sermon and over 3,000 people accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. So the very first day of the first church, they become a megachurch on that first day. It's never, it's never happened again. It's really kind of mind-boggling to think about. Today, a megachurch is defined by a church of 1,200 or more people. In our terminology, it's a megachurch. They became almost a you know, triple megachurch in one day. Pretty mind-boggling, isn't it? And then by Acts chapter 4, the church has now grown to over what is said 5,000 men. But I'm sure if you were counting the women and the children, that was probably over 15,000. Then by Acts 5, it says, more and more believe multitudes of both men and women. I mean, they quit counting at this point. There's so many, they're just, they've decided to stop counting, apparently. By chapter 6, it says they had multiplied again. That is called exponential growth. The church keeps multiplying. What the church is lacking today is exponential growth. And we're included in that, unfortunately. Exponential growth is where one believer goes out and shares his faith with a, with a person. They become a believer, and then those two go out, and they share their faith with two other believers. Then four go out, and the church keeps exponentially growing. But today, the church has really dropped the ball, and that's why so many churches are in decline rather than on the rise, because too many of God's followers have decided, well, we're going to leave the, the, the church growth up to the, uh, to the professionals. The professionals, pastors, the missionaries, the, you know, I just attend church. I'm not responsible for growing the church. No, you're wrong. You are absolutely wrong. We are all in this thing together. Amen? See, that was so weak. We're all in this thing together. Amen? amen. Okay, because I wasn't going to go on until I got a decent amen on that. So just to let you know. It's estimated that by Acts 21, that the church is now about 25 years old, and they estimate at that point they had about 100,000 members. Now, what's interesting about this is Jerusalem at that time had a population of about 200,000. And so you've got a town of 200,000 people, and 100,000 people belong to the first church. That's pretty amazing, right? Wow, that'd be some bragging rights right there. How did they do that? How did they build a church of 100,000 in a town of 200,000? How did they even have church, right? You talk about your parking problems, right? There's no way you can park that many camels in one spot. There's just not a, a lot big enough to get them all in there. 
Here's how the Bible says they did it. It's given to us in Acts 5, verse 42. Day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. Day after day. It doesn't say, and on Sunday morning, they got together and thought about the Lord. No, it says day after day. The key words here, day after day, and temple courts and house to house. You know, we're, we're talking about a large group type of worship, and then we're talking about small group fellowships, and that's what I'm going to talk about a lot today. I'm going to talk about our, our small groups that are getting ready to fire back up here uh, first of next month. They didn't meet in the temple at one time because they wouldn't all fit. They met in various temple courts and in each other's homes, which is talking about small groups, right? Where'd we get the idea for Wednesday night small group? We didn't think it up. Some other church didn't think it up. It's from the Bible. It's right from the get-go. It's just that our uh, right now, our number of small groups, it makes it possible for us to have them all on Wednesday night here throughout the, the church campus. But of course, my vision for this is to where we've got so many people, we either have to have multiple nights here at the church of small groups, or we got to do it the old-fashioned way and just start having some in houses, one way or the other. But if you only come to Calvary Temple, if you only come to CT on, on Sunday, you're missing out on really the most relational part of belonging to a church family. Small groups are where you're going to get to build relationships, not, not sitting in a Sunday morning service. It's important, but it's not going to meet the need of building relationships, which is what we're all called to do, called to be part of this family. There's several reasons we believe in small groups, not the least of which is that it's biblical. But I want to give us a couple of reasons this morning that we do believe in, in small groups. The first one is this. Small groups are relational, and that's what we're talking about. You get to build relationships. You can't really hold a conversation with a crowd, right? We can't have a conversation right now, per se. It's too many of us. But in a small group, you really get to know people. You can pray for each other. They can pray for you. In the good times and the bad times, you're there to lift and build each other up. One of the major problems that we have in our culture today is that most of us live among strangers. Doesn't apply to everyone in this room, but I'm saying if we took a poll, I'm telling you, most of us live among strangers. You say, what are you talking about, Pastor Doug? Well, I'm talking about this. When I was a kid... I lived at 213 West Shore Drive, and I'm telling you that whole street, I, could, I think I could tell you every person up and down my side and across the other side, I could tell you who they all were. That doesn't mean I was you know, like this with them, no, but I knew them all. They'd come outside, hey. Today, chances are good you don't know the people that live on your left, right, or right across the street from you. Chances are good. Maybe you do, but I'm telling you, that's become the exception, not the rule. We live among strangers today, not nearly as relational as we once were. And I have a theory about this. Anybody want to hear it? Three of you do. Guess what? You're all going to hear it. It's in my notes right here. I'm going through it. Here is my theory on why we, one reason we have become so uh, non-relational, and it is due to the invention of the electric garage door opener. I'm telling you. You, call, you walk into your garage, you get in your car, 
Garage door goes up, you back out, you go wherever you're going, you come back home, you pull into the garage, the garage door goes down, you get out, you go out. You never had to say hi or one peep to anybody in your neighborhood. Right? Garage doors are killing us, man. <laughs> They're killing the relational thing. Just, you don't have to talk to anybody. No need for interaction with neighbors. How many of you, would, let me see your hand this morning, if you don't know the names of the people to your left and right and two houses across the street, you don't know their, all their first names. Let me see your hand. A bunch of hands. It didn't used to be that way, right? So my guess is, you know, you live on a street where you probably don't know some people who've lived there for many years. Our relational skills have really gone into decline which even helps explain the horrific divorce rate today. 50%. One out of two marriages fail. Why? The big problem is people don't have relational skills. They don't know how to deal with the conflict. They don't know how to resolve the issues that are going to come up in marriage. Anyone here married? You've never had an issue or a conflict? Let me see your hand, and we will bow down before you. <laughs> Not going to happen, right? Pastor Brothers is still the only person I know that has told me, and I mean, I've questioned him and questioned him. He says he and Dorothy Brothers never had an argument. That's what you told me, right? 60 years of marriage, never had an argument. And I remember uh, 61, I'm sorry, 61 years. Of... <laughs> You're right down to the day and hour. You sure you never had an argument? It was 61 years, nine months. I was, I was speaking at her funeral, and I said, now, I found out what happened. Pastor Brothers, he, I kept telling him, man, what is the secret? How do you marry this long and you never have an argument? And he told me, he said, well, I'll tell you what we did. On our wedding day, we came to an agreement that... Dorothy would be in charge of all the small, unimportant decisions that affect our life, but I would be in charge of all the big, important decisions. And can you believe in 61 years, we never had one big, important decision that ever had to be made? <laughs> and that was the secret, apparently. <laughs> That's why you told, just shake your head, work with me, Pastor Brothers. I'm making this up as I go, but... Okay. <laughs> People today don't know how to resolve conflict, and it's affecting marriages. If Jesus said that the most important thing in life is to show love, it's, don't you think it's very, very important that we all develop some relational skills? Kind of hard to show love to people when you have no relational skills. And the thing is this, as far as your, your church family goes, you don't have to know everybody in the church for it to be your church, but you have to know somebody you got to get to know somebody. Small groups is such a wonderful place to get to know somebody. You need to know that there's somebody there that will help you in, in your time of need and someone that you can help when they have a need. Small groups are about building relationships. Secondly, small groups are expandable. We can always start new small groups. I'm hoping, as I said before long, we don't have enough room for all of our small groups and we'll have to do it the old-fashioned way. 
The church should always be growing. The church should all, if, if your church is not growing, if our church isn't growing, or whoever's church is not growing, there's a real problem. If we're not growing, it means that we're being selfish. That's the bottom line. If we are not growing, we're not growing as a body of believers because we're being selfish and we're, not, we're, we're just concerned about ourselves. We're not concerned about the lost and dying. If we were, the church would be growing because we'd be doing what the early church did. We'd be out talking to people. We'd be out building. Or if a church is in decline, I'm telling you, this is the prevailing attitude in that church. And I'm not swearing. I'm being black and white. The attitude is, look, we've got enough people here. We're fine. We're all going to heaven. That's all we care about. The rest of you will probably just go to hell. That's the selfish attitude that is prevailing in a church if it's not growing. You could sugarcoat it however you want, but I'm telling you, when you get down to grassroots, that's what's going on. Everybody's satisfied just where they're at. We're going to heaven. If you go to hell, hey, it's not my problem. We go to church. We have enough. I hope to see small groups just begin to burst at the seams first week of September. We believe in the temple court meeting. That's what we're doing right now. But we've got to catch the vision for the small group, the house to house. How many of you have heard the name Sir Edmund Hillary? Let me see your hand if you've heard that name, Sir Edmund Hillary. Now, those of you that have your hands up, keep it raised if you can actually tell me what he's famous for. Paul. Exactly. Did everybody hear Paul? Paul always got the answer. I'll tell you that. Whenever I say he always has a head, he's a smart guy. He was the first person to be credited with climbing Mount Everest. And here is a direct quote from Sir Edmund Hillary. He said it would be foolish to attempt to climb Mount Everest by yourself. You cannot do it without a small group of people. It would be suicidal to attempt to get to the peak by yourself. You absolutely need a small group to support you. You know, when I read that, I thought, that is basically true in every area of our life. And today there's a lot of people trying to climb out of some pretty deep holes or, or climb some pretty tall mountains. They're trying to climb uh, out of grief or climb over a mountain of debt or guilt or loss or fear, or painful memories. Well, I mean, they're trying to climb out. But the deal is, if you're trying to climb a big hill and, and, and you want to reach that peak and you want to reach your full potential, you're never going to climb Mount Everest by yourself. And we all need to real, un, realize that and understand it. All by yourself. You're never going to reach the peak by yourself. You're never going to reach the heights that God has for you just all by yourself. His plan is and always has been for you to involve other people in your life and for you to be involved in their lives. It goes both ways, right? So I want to finish up this morning by just taking a quick look at what makes, what identifies a healthy small group. There are, I think there are six identifying factors of a healthy small group that is talked, spoken of in Acts chapter 2. Let me read it for you. This should be the model for all small groups. Acts 2, 42 through 47. It says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer, everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. 
Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. If you haven't been involved in small groups, then these six things are are what you're going to be missing out on. And if you have been involved in small groups, you can kind of grade yourself on how your groups have been doing. Six things to identify a healthy small group. First of all, according to this description, first they studied the Bible. It should be a no-brainer, right? That's the first sign of a healthy group. It says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings. They're talking about the Word of God. They didn't have a, a nice bound leather book like we have today but they would study and talk about what the disciples had taught in those temple meetings. And that's what we do in small groups. Our life groups discuss the Sunday morning sermon, and they break it down and talk about how can we apply this in a practical way to our everyday life. Secondly, I love this one. They fellowshiped and they ate together. That's a good one right there. Verse 42, it says they devoted themselves to fellowship. It means they committed themselves to meeting with their group. They committed to their group. They made it a priority. If you join a small group and you only show up once a month, that's not fellowship. That's not being relational. Frequency and commitment is the key. But verse 46 says they ate together with glad and sincere hearts. Now, you know, I don't want to brag Today, but if there's one thing I do well, it's every time I eat, it is with a glad and sincere heart. (laughs) I know you can't tell by looking, but I'm just telling you, that's the way it is. You know, we even offer a meal on Wednesday nights during our nine months out of the year of small groups. Every Wednesday night, you don't even have to run home and fix a meal. You can come straight to church for $3. You get a whole meal, entree, dessert, your drink. You can't fix something for three bucks, right? I think it's interesting that if you really study closely the ministry of Jesus, you find that almost every time Jesus was teaching, there was usually some food and eating involved. A lot of his A lot of Jesus' major teachings were done while dinner was involved. And I've just made it a priority in my life to be as Christ-like as I possibly can. (laughs) That's how I roll. You say, yeah, you could roll right out the front door, down the street. This is a problem, I know. Thirdly, the third sign of a healthy small group, they prayed for each other. In those verses, it says... They devoted themselves to prayer. And we talk all the time about the power of two or more gathering in prayer, gathered in His name. We have so many great and very powerful testimonies of what God has done in people's lives through the ministry of, of their small groups. You know, when you're all stressed out, there's nothing like coming together with a group of people to gather around you and lift you up in prayer. And sometimes in our lives, we can be so stressed or grieved or broken that we just feel like, we don't even feel like we can pray effectively. And that's when you need people around you that can. Praying for you. Sometimes we need people to have some faith for us, right? We've all experienced times, you know, you can all, someone can say, oh, my faith never never falters. And I'm thinking, no, okay. 
I think all of us have experienced times in our life where, man, it just, the burden is so heavy. We're thinking, God, are, are you there? And sometimes that's when we need a family around us to lift us up, support us, to encourage us and remind us, that, yes, he is still there. And he still cares and loves for you just as much as before you ever entered into this, whatever this storm of life is that you're involved in. We need each other to pray on our behalf sometimes when we're angry or depressed or discouraged or, or worried about something. You have a church family, so you don't have to carry all the burdens of life by yourself. You've got a family of people there to help you. The fourth sign of a healthy small group, they helped each other in very practical ways. Verse 45 says, they gave to whoever in their small group was in need. That's what small groups do. You know, you need to borrow a lawnmower? Hey, hey you can borrow mine. I'm not going to do it, but I'll let you have the more. You need a babysitter? I can, I, we can babysit. Your spouse has been sick. You've been sick. Hey, you know what? Our small group, we're going we're gonna to bring some meals into you this week. So, you, know, you know, that's the kind of stuff we encourage and we do in small groups. And, and that's kind of the exact opposite of the, what has become the American way. You know, the American way is a very centralized kind of care. Christian view is a decentralized care. We, we want to be a part of it. We want to make it personal. But today it's so easy to repeat, you know, someone needs help. Hey, you know what? I'll, I'm going to go online and, and see what a government agency might be able to do something for you. I don't know. The fifth sign of a healthy group, they worship together. Verse 47 says, they praised God and they enjoyed the favor of all the people. You know, so many times I've heard testimonies from people who were so tired when they got off work on a Wednesday night, they were just, oh, kind of headed home. And then they said, no, I'm, I've made a commitment. I'm going to go to my, after spending time, and they get to their small group on Wednesday night. And I mean, they come out of that meeting uh, after spending time in the word and worshiping God and, and empowering each other. And they just feel reinvigorated. And that's because when a group of people get together and they talk about Jesus and his teachings, it absolutely, it gives us strength and it, it lifts us up. It builds us up. The Bible says that even uh, that through fellowship, we are spiritually strengthened. A successful small group, man, it's like a little fire. They're these hot coals of fire, but you take one out and set it off to the side, and that thing cools off really fast. And the only way to get it, warm it back up, stick it back in the fire. That's fire. That's your, that needs to be your small group. And finally, they invited others to their group. Now, here's one of those things that you can kind of evaluate yourself on. How have you been at inviting people to come be a part of your group. A small group setting is the only way you're, you may only ever get some of your friends to come into a setting where they're going to hear any of the gospel of Jesus. I mean, offer to buy them their dinner. Surely getting someone to church to hear about Jesus is worth three bucks, right? And if the three bucks is holding you back, you come talk to me, we will work this thing out. We won't even let that stand in the way. Our small groups, every one of our small groups ought to be outreach groups. It ought to be about reaching out. The small groups in Jerusalem were all about inviting others, and they were constantly multiplying, doubling, doubling, constantly. 
Every day the number of people saved continued to grow. Now here I'm going to tell you something. Everyone paying attention? How do you know if your group is really healthy and mature? Here's how you'll know. Your group starts having babies. I'm speaking spiritually before you get all excited and worked up here. I'm speaking spiritually. The real proof, you know, of physical maturity is the ability to reproduce. Right? You heard that? The proof of spiritual maturity in a small group is when you can birth a new small group. Not just keep to yourselves and go on and on and on. And it's, it's, you know, it's all us and no one else. That's a very, very unhealthy small group. The sci- it's a very immature small group. The mature small group is constantly about birthing new groups, reproducing. So if you haven't been a part of our small group, come out on Wednesday night, September or August 29th. Free steak dinner, as Pastor Todd told you. Come out, you're going to get a big old baked potato, a big pile of green beans, your very own two and a half ounce steak. I don't know how big they're going to be. They might be three ounces for all we know. I don't don't know. You can't put a limit on God, right? But you can put a limit on steak size. Ask my wife. I don't know how big they're going to be. I asked my wife just this morning. I said, now, are we sure those steaks are going to be big enough? Because this is important to me. She said, well, they look pretty big to me. And I, I, I left not feeling all that assured because that doesn't mean anything look big enough to me. So I don't know how big they're going to be, but it's going to be a nice steak dinner, and it's free. So come out and check out small groups, hear from the different leaders uh, who are going to be leading uh, all of the individual groups, and starts for three bucks, eat a meal, begin. Come on Wednesday before it starts for three bucks, eat a meal, begin to participate in a small group, and begin to become a vital member of that group. Get connected, get vitally connected. Amen? Membership has its privileges. You have been listening to CT Church in San Antonio, Texas. This recording was presented in the context of our Sunday service. For more information, please visit us at ctagsa.com, connect with us on Facebook, or call us at 210-657-3578.